Welcome to the T's and C's. Tisa and Chantel. Also known as the Terms and Conditions. Good morning, listeners. It is week, are we week five or week 40? No. Four. four. We're week four. four of Surviving Society Presents yeah. T's and C's, The Reflection, during the COVID-19 global pandemic. This week, we are really privileged to be joined by Professor Nasamir, who is a professor of race and citizenship and, and migration, NASA. It's in the mix somewhere. In the mix, <laughs> Edinburgh Uni. NASA is Surviving Society alumni. You might remember he's blew our minds with trains and public transports as microclimates. He's ruined the train. He's ruined the trains for me. I honestly, every ruined time I get on the train now, I think about that. the trains. <laughs> Suspicious I am of everyone. What are you looking at? Why are you looking at me? <laughs> NASA's going to talk to us. Obviously, we're going to have our usual chats about um, COVID-19 and the issues with race and capitalism. But NASA's going to talk to us a little bit about some of the hidden victims and populations um, that we need to be thinking about during this time. Over to you, NASA. Sure. So great to be here. Um, I guess the opening kind of observation to make is that in all the uncertainty accompanying COVID-19, it's easy to forget that safety is a bit of a relative concept. And whilst COVID-19 affects everybody, you know, it won't do so equally. And for millions of people in refugee camps and informal settlements, the pandemic posed a really terrifying threat, I think in a way in which lays bare all the inadequacies of the way in which governments around the world approach refugee resettlement. Um, If you think about some of the biggest camps, places like Cox's Bazaar, which is home to about 850,000 refugees who fled uh, Myanmar, Rohingya refugees. They're living in confined shelters. The population density is such that about 40,000 people share a kilometre squared. So social distancing is impossible. There's no hand washing stations, no triage centres, no isolation places, and no clean uh, running water. And what's true of um, Cox's Bazaar um, in Bangladesh is it's true the world over, from you know people who are displaced, obviously, in Syria, Venezuela, um, Idlib province. Um, we've seen on the border with the US and Mexico, um, the Ciudad Suarez, which is a kind of a shanty town, which has developed there. And there's places like Al Hol in Syria and the Tatari camp in, in Jordan, to name the most obvious. But I suppose it's really here in, in Europe that a really unfortunate set of circumstances are unfolding in real time. This is uh, principally an issue in a lot of the um, islands surrounding Greece, which were points of first entry into Europe from Turkey. And what's happened happened with the the deal to try to stem the movement of people from the Middle East into Europe via Turkey into Cyprus has been that the people there are just trapped. They can't really move on. And so you've got this swelling of displaced migrants and refugees in these camps which aren't fit for purpose. Most of them were never designed to be camps. Disease is already rife. I mean, there's people from um, British medics out there who talk about how in one camp, the Moira camp in Lesbos, or Lesbos, depending on how you pronounce it, there's an outbreak of scabies. 
So, you know, in 21st century Europe, you've got untreated scabies on European soil and no proper intervention to try to address it. So you've got people living in close quarters, no sanitation with um, profound underlying health conditions, and then add COVID-19. And all of this is entirely avoidable if the European Union acted in partner with European states and just took people into the mainland, gave them a decent amount of housing and access to healthcare those people would be fine. They'd be like the rest of us. But instead, we're going to get a very high level of mortality, uh, which is entirely preventable. And it will disproportionately hit, you know, young people as much as people with underlying health conditions. You know, being young is not going to save people from this in those refugee camps. But NASA, with something like this now, I mean, obviously with COVID being an existential threat that's going to affect everyone, I can already see the discourses forming around where it's meant to be a global effort I can see states jostling for nationalist positions, right? So you could frame the refugees in that discourse. So if that kind of nationalist rhetoric is was there already and it's already rearing its head, they're going to say, keep those people where they are. And already they've been dehumanised because they're brown, they're refugees. So they're, most people, well, not most people, the narrative describes them as being less than human already. Yeah. So it, it, almost become, it almost becomes a kind of a foreshadowing of of well, European and definitely Brexit policy over the last, what, five or six years. I would hope that given this kind of global spirit of cooperation, we would kind of try to say, look, we want to assimilate these people because you can you can minimise this by assimilating people into crowds. But because Europe spent so long pushing that narrative as immigration is a no-no, foreigners are a no-no, refugees are a no-no, I can't, I don't know how we overcome that because... We've spent so long, and like, like I said, Trump this morning kind of cutting funding from the from the mm. World Organization. That's nationalist posturing. Yeah. So I, I think that's absolutely right. So I mean, when I'm thinking about what the implications of COVID nineteen is for refugees and displaced migrants, I'm thinking that there's three kind of features to it. One is the immediate things that I've kind of been describing, which is you know the lack of access to healthcare, you know, and everything that comes with that. So the immediate peril. But then there's the kind of medium and long term things, which, which I think you're capturing very well, which is how will states respond to this challenge and will they use it as a means to disembed um, conventions of asylum protection? You know, mm-hmm. are they going to stop um, trying to honour international guaranteed obligations? You know, as members of the European Union, they're also signatories of the uh, United Nations um, de- Declaration on Refugees. Um, and we've seen examples of, the, of that second already. You know, we've seen countries, especially Hungary, but actually pretty much all European Union countries, with the exception of Germany and I think Sweden at the moment, have said that they're not taking any um, asylum seekers. Now, most of them have done that as a temporary measure, and I, you know, would suspect that a number of them would relax that in time to come, but some may not. Some may use it as a means to buttress, you know, their nationalist ideology, which is ultimately that migrants and refugees bring danger. And there is no more uh, clearer illustration of this than, than health and disease, and, you know, which is not novel. You know, historically, the Irish were seen to bring with them cholera, Jewish minorities have historically been associated with certain kinds of diseases and pandemics and so on. But that's the challenge, isn't it? And the challenge is to make sure that that's not allowed to undermine the principles of things like 
non-refoulement, which is the United Nations declaration that people who enter a country through legal or, or non-formal means can't be returned to their site of um, departure because of fear of persecution or conflict or whatever. Um, so that's the fundamental principle, which I think is going to be pushed back on. But there are positives. I mean, when you look at around uh, Europe, over the last kind of 10 to 15 years, one of the interesting developments has been the ways in which cities have responded to uh, migration. Um, we've seen the development of things like Cities of Sanctuary, the Save Me campaign, the International Cities of Refuge network, the Euro Cities network, which all kind of were galvanized and activated in the so-called refugee crisis. They were already there, but they really kind of had a, a new purpose. So when Angela Merkel said on German television during the height of that movement of people, you know, we can do this, she was really saying that Berlin can do this and a lot of German cities can do this. Um, and so there's, there's kind of a, a way in which you can talk about positive examples that states can um, can come back today if, if they want to. And some states have been quite bold. So Portugal recently um, decided that it would give full and unfettered healthcare access to everybody who didn't have a formal migration status in Portugal because they, they took the view that, you know, they can't quarantine off people who aren't formalised in terms of their migration status and that the public health concern is so great that they need to be bold in that approach and they did it carried it off with a great deal of public support. So there are precedents for doing things differently, I think. And thank you for that, Nessa. I guess one of my fears that I feel like I, you're sort of seeing on a day-to-day -day basis and thinking more in terms of the UK right now um, is this ever-present, what Michael Billig called the banal nationalism. And that, coupled with people's selective empathy is really troubling I think like obviously we've seen the resurgence of like symbolic um discourse language visual representations of nationality in the UK and obviously across the um across Europe be reinvigorated but you're kind of seeing it branch into new a new territory right now I feel like I don't I don't really know how to word it but it's making it I know it's making me feel a bit sick <laughs> watching it prevail it's it's disturbing because you're you're I, I was saying to Tisa before we started Tisa was saying this is an opportunity for us to do something different for things to change for things to be better but I feel like people haven't maybe haven't got it in them to be to have this a kind of radical love and radical empathy that's needed in a global pandemic and that is needed in this next stage of whatever society we're going to be living in um choosing who lives and who dies mm. i feel like comes easier to people when you have this national this this nationalism so deeply embedded within our day-to-day -day now whether it's through the slogans that the government are now using constantly on the radio every time they speak they're signing off with states like it, it it reminds me so much of a general election so. yeah i mean i think that one of the interesting features of the celebration of frontline workers has been the ways in which migration has been unavoidable 
insofar as it's the people who moved here and their kids who were delivering healthcare to large swaths of the population in the NHS, but not only in the NHS, in, in other service care sectors, homes. care homes and service sectors where there's deliveries of goods and, and, and other things. It's kind of forced a lot of people to try to grasp that migration comes with unseen benefits which are seen to the rest of us but not to them because they've only understood their country through a narrow prism for however long. Now whether or not that's a momentary thing or whether or not it will have a long attraction yet to be seen but I suppose it's quite important that we don't let that narrative fall back to one which is crafted by those who would cast Britain back to the 1950s as being a better and nicer place when there weren't so many people like you and I. I suppose the other feature of that is the way in which there's notions of deserving and undeserving migrants. And so, you know, great. Yeah, we love migrants when they come here, put themselves on the front line and die um, healing sick. But you're not welcome unless you can show that either you've done that or you're willing to do that. That can't be the principle of sanctuary on the, you know, for uh, the admittance of non-admittance of displaced migrants and refugees, the principle have to, has to be one about safety and uh, a mutual obligation, which is what's you know a matter of law. I mean, I'm not suggesting that countries need to be suddenly super altruistic. You know, the 51 Refugee Convention insists that asylum-seeking refugees can't be penalised for having entered the country irregularly or you know, and in light of, of COVID-19, you know, the UN High Commission for Refugees set out a clear protocol identifying um, and addressing the vulnerability of asylum seekers for refugees. And, and those things are matters of international law and convention, and states need to uphold those. Um, whether that then allows countries to remake common narratives of who and what we are, I suppose is yet to be seen. But what I would say is that it's early days within this kind of spiral of, of COVID-19 and how it how it unfolds, I think that there's a lot of pieces in the air um, and how they land is, is to some extent also in our hands. Well, what, what I find quite interesting is kind of put upon Chantel's point about the kind of banality of um, of nationalism. So this idea of frontline workers, so some of the narrative has been taken. So the idea that one, one guy was voicing the concern that why are we clapping for NHS workers? what he was implying was why are we clapping for immigrants? Because they came over for selfish reasons. I'm not going to say, I'm going to say thank you, but we have to realise that they came for selfish reasons. It's that kind of rejigging of that narrative that they're still separate. They're doing good stuff, but they're still separate. It's that British exceptionalism as well. Like, And it reminds me of Gaminda Bambra's writing and talking about British people, people on this island do not know where they've come from and where this country came from. Like they think that it's an island and it never it just hasn't been for such a long time. And that sort of reasserting Britain as an island right now, I feel like is what you're seeing even in the conversations about who's on the front line, the NHS, all this stuff. Well, yeah. I feel, I feel Nessa's argument I kind of I'll kind of look the two. So Nessa, what you're saying is kind of accepting refugees being enshrined in law. So we have after World War Two and the Great Depression, we have after World War II, we have the formation of like international organizations of and kind of idea of international law where everyone's duty bound to do something to stop this a big catastrophe happening again. And I think we, this is the spirit of the, that catastrophe was the spirit that made those institutions the UN, 
the WHO, the World Bank, the IMF. And I think now in 2020, we have that same kind of potential here where we can craft law to, to make, make people, make states meet their obligations to help the world. Because the idea that we're independent is a fallacy, it's a myth. It always has been. So we need to construct a new narrative, mm. and I can see that in this in this opportunity, in this time, we can do that. But with yeah. players like Trump, people like Boris Johnson, who are, well, Trump's very clear where he stands, but someone like Johnson's on the periphery. He's playing both sides, right? Mm. Sometimes talking about society, but also acting individu individualistically. So I, I don't know where they sit, but right now is I can see that moment. We can make new laws that will hold everyone accountable. Yeah. So, I mean, in what you say, there's a lot in what, what both you and Chantal just said there about um, the kind of the mythology of, of the nation, you know, that post-colonial melancholia about resurrecting that wartime spirit. And, you know, in the, in the language and the, the presentation of the UK response to COVID-19, it very much draws upon this kind of blitz, it's a London thing, but this kind of blitz mentality of, you know, we'll yeah. pull together uh, and we'll we'll carry on. Um, I mean, that's immediately punctured, isn't it, by the fact that even in the Second World War, Britain wasn't on its own. It was being buttressed by how many millions of its colonial uh, soldiers who were fighting for various various reasons. And the reality of uh, UK contemporary UK food supplies. I mean, the UK has been self-sufficient in food production since I think around 1920 and relies heavily upon importing food, which is you know, part of the rationale for a lot of the panic buying that would food supplies be, be disrupted. So the, the kind of the mythology which is being presented about the UK and how it might get through COVID-19 by pulling together as one nation, as an island with a long and proud history, is of course inconsistent with what we know to be true, both historically and factually in terms of matters at hand. But there is a certain kind of currency in that, isn't there, in terms of deploying it um, uh, as almost a kind of a nightly news bulletin, um, as if bon Johnson was Churchill addressing the nation, signing off on his radio broadcast. But, but it works. I've, I've come out here and I've seen people outside that who are not, I would say, in the main, not politically interested, but coming out and I can hear clapping. It works. So that that's why, we, well, we know it works, right? So. Yeah. That, but the, the clapping is interesting to me, right? Because, I mean, so so there's an ambiguity in that. Because, I mean, I don't think that everybody who's taken to the doorstep to applaud, obviously not for Johnson. I don't know of anybody who's applauding for Johnson, <laughs> other than bots on Twitter who are claiming they're applauding for Johnson. Yeah. But well, clapping... I was outside my house last week checking, like, anyone? Anyone? <laughs> anyone? You clap? I want to know. <laughs> but, but people will come out and clap for the NHS, for frontline workers, yes. and won't necessarily do so for nationalistic reasons, but for reasons of um, gratitude. Of um, now, I mean, that's kind of a, to some extent, that's a bit of a naive reading, because then it's a question of how that gratitude is, is framed and mobilised by political actors, and who will take it as, to some extent, a confirmation, an indirect applause for what they do, you know. Uh, Matt Hancock and others joining in with the clapping is almost uh, a means of appropriating that affection for yeah. uh, frontline workers and so on. But there is something in that which is about society and about the some the um, you know some being 
uh, more than the constituent of its parts. And, and there's the rediscovery, which is part of the hope, I think, Tutso, in this affair, that the rediscovery of society and the virtue of pulling together, not on the grounds of some fantasy of the past, but on the understanding that pooled resources and efforts are what uh, are, are virtuous, as opposed to kind of a highly individualized approach to public health care and indeed, you know, how we live in our homes and in our neighborhoods. So I, I think that's a point for optimism. The question is to what extent that's racialized or not and who gets to be in the common we. And that goes back to the point we were discussing earlier, which is I think it's really hard to avoid the fact that so much of the contribution uh, and indeed the contribution which leads to a disproportionate number of fatalities is 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 visually, you know, a, by black and ethnic minorities in this country. That you just can't get away from that. Right. And, right. and I, I can't help but think that will force people to rethink who they think they are in in in, in effect, or certainly who they think other people who don't look like them are. Well, I spoke to my friend the other day, and he said to me he didn't believe. The statistics about black Americans being disproportionately affected by COVID-19. He didn't believe about the UK statistics about black and minority ethnics. So he's a white guy, working class, um, owns his own business. He said it's not true. And I'm like, why would you make that up? Mm. Why would someone make that? But this is in the age of conspiracy, mm. how it's racialized. They don't believe that they, they still see, in his case, he thinks it's post-racial. He thinks racism ended in 1945 or something like that. And, and I think in a, in, a, in a less extreme version than that, although, T, I do agree that there are definitely people that are saying that type of thing, but in a less extreme version that, there's almost an uncomfortableness about say, when you say that to people as well. Actually, like, a few days ago, it was like 100% of the doctors that died were black or Asian. And, like... You're, you're almost hit like I haven't heard it on the news yet and listeners correct me if I'm wrong I'm, I'm sure someone has said it a right-wing pundit but the accusation of making this about race and yeah. it actually being about equalize it's it's a global pandemic it affects everyone equally no it doesn't but yeah. like you're I still feel like that pushback even though that we know that this is the case that it is so the, the, the like they make up Black and I think black and minority I think people in the NHS make up thirteen percent I think of the NHS workforce and seventy five percent of people that have died now or so like yeah it's about yeah partly it's about the uses and misuses of of concepts and categories isn't it I mean why is ethnicity and race uh, an explanatory factor when we're trying to get a handle on, I don't know, grooming gangs or elevated levels of criminality. Why does ethnicity and race help us there, as in in the reporting of it, and certainly by the right wing, the framing of the issue? But why does ethnicity and race help us to understand frontline service, disproportionate impacts and inequalities? Let's not talk about race when <laughs> when it's about inequality, but let's talk about race when it allows us to absolve ourselves of responsibility for a particular social outcome. I think that one of the challenges that the UK and other European Union countries are going to face is when the media lockdown is, to some extent, relaxed. And, you know, we may have lots of kind of stop and start lockdowns, you know, 
hold and release until a virus until a vac- uh, until a vaccination is made available is is how they then honor their obligations even if they want to um to disperse migrants and refugees in the context of having been complicit in this deeply racialized and toxic discourse around migrants and refugees over the past however many years. You know, even in countries like Sweden, which has been relatively progressive in terms of taking in the most vulnerable, there's a racialized rhetoric there, which has become more so around health and disease and so on. And when the state wants to switch back, if there's a will, then it will have to deal with that. And it'll have to come up with a common story about who and what we are now in the light of this post-COVID world to be able to do it. Because I don't think you can easily turn back the rhetoric or dial, I mean, you can, you know, you can dial it down, but what has been said and how arguments have been framed will have a legacy. And that, to some extent, is worrying me a bit more. I mean, I'm, I'm hugely worried about the immediate impact of COVID-19. I think there's going to be possibly thousands of un- totally avoidable deaths in Europe. Yeah. Um, but that's an immediate concern. And once we're past that, I don't see how we're going to be able to move past some of the bigger things, which is, well, okay, the right thing is to take people into the country and support them as we are required to do and would benefit the country overall. But you have to then deal with the popular rhetoric around migration and disease. And I think that's going to be a bigger challenge. I think that we'll have to change it. In light of what's to come economically, in light of what, what they're predicting, the depression, and it's a global contraction. And remember places, it, like countries in Africa, like more, from Mauritania to Nigeria, they can't do social distancing. So they ha- And they haven't got infrastructure to put in place to keep people safe. So people will vote with their feet and leave those countries. Yeah. Because that's what people do when they look for a better, a better life. So European laws around migration, even global laws around migration will need to change because people will all from all parts of the world be, will be on the move, either because they feel unsafe or they're looking for a better life. This global contraction of what, what, 3%, the last, the last depression lasted 10 years and this one was supposed to be worse. So we've got, we've got 10 years, well, potentially 10 years or more of economic stress and duress around the globe. So people were looking for opportunities wherever they can. And that's the human story, looking for opportunities where you can. So nation states will need to kind of either change the rhetoric around who is the other, because even even by our own account, we have a demographic crisis in the UK prior to this contract, prior to this pandemic, prior to the depression. So what what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to look for a new narrative to explain people and how we're going to get ahead. I think that Europe's long had uh, a demographic challenge in terms of the weighting of the population. And in some countries, it's more pronounced than others. So in Italy, for a long time, the levels of fertility have been really low and the population has aged. And, you know, that's had implications for the tax base and then a question of both caring for the elderly and so on. Despite that, it's never that the, the reality of that has never translated into a more progressive or open-minded political culture. You would think that out of self-interest, if nothing else, that that would prevail. What has happened is spaces of kind of hope and and progress within particular countries. And and they're often at the local level, at the city level. So in the way in which I was talking about Germany and other cities in in Northern Europe, that's very true of of cities in South of Europe, places like Riace 
and Cosenza in Calabria have been part of a tradition of welcoming cities. And we've done some work out there in the past where we wandered around the piazza in the main square and old women uh, who kind of lived there for a long time will come to say to us in Italian, and we've got colleagues who've translated for us, would say to us, isn't it marvellous? We can we can hear children's voices in the square. And we never thought we'd hear children in this in this town again, you know, because of internal migration, people fled to the north of Italy or people left Italy. And so these towns have historically been depopulated and then they were repopulated by displaced migrants and refugees. And that form that meant that a school could be opened, a hospital created, there was local economies. So the spaces of hope within um, countries in Europe for doing things differently and for responding to the needs of displaced migrants and refugees in a way in which is constructive, the challenge is to scale that up to something more than the local. And how does it remake the national? And then ideally, how does it remake you know, a vision of what, what Europe is? And I suspect that rather than a more uh, a softening of borders with any COVID-19 global migration as in the last refugee crisis, which was perpetuated with a push factor, perpetuated by conflict and war and famine. I think we'll get another kind of, let's stop them crossing the Mediterranean. You know, let's please the water. Let's do a deal with Turkey, which means that they don't cross over. And then, you know, human beings get turned into uh, a, a weaponized. You know, Turkey will occasionally let people cross into Europe when the EU is not playing ball with Turkey. Um, and that's quite a depressing prospect, I think. Oh, guys, <laughs> we're going to have to wrap up there. Okay. That, there was some hope in that last bit, NASA, but equally some very terrifying. <laughs> wow. Um, we hope you are all keeping safe, staying home if you can. Um, and yeah, sending you all love and solidarity during this time. Peace. Take care. See you.